collective power. We are out to transform trauma system-wide by presenting a mirror of the system to itself. Each month, we focus on one system, and each episode, we focus on one person's experience and their angle. At the end of each month, we bring all those angles together to reveal a new big picture. Stay with us to discover our collective power and what's possible for our city, for our country, and our world. I am Dr. Rita Fierro, and I am your host. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Collective Power. It's really my honor to have as a guest this morning, Raphael Freeman. Hi, Raphael. What's up, Rita? It's an honor for me to be here. So thanks for having me on. Thank you for taking time on this rainy day. I know you're a West Philly person, so you know you came all the way over to Germantown. That's right, up to beautiful Germantown (laughs) in the beautiful weather. Yeah, exactly. I love it. Beautiful. I invited you on the show today because we're talking about political systems. Okay. Last week, we had a kind of grassroots organizer and activist, Alicia Dorsey, joined us. And her perspective is really on the kind of grassroots organizing, like interacting with local and state representatives. And and like she talked a little bit about gerrymandering and systems of accountabilities at the state level to city council and city politics. You have a completely different perspective, and that's exactly why you're here today. <laughs> okay. Because uh, you're a political scientist, right? I so, am. So first of all, for those of us who maybe like me before college didn't even know what a political scientist was, what is a political scientist and what does a political scientist do? I guess one of the straightforward ways of how I would define what political science is about and what a political scientist does, it's someone who not only looks at political systems, political theories, but also takes seriously the externality, the unintended consequences of political decisions. So, for example, you may have someone who might look at something like maybe unions should have this relationship to this state or Maybe the government should institute this policy, but without thinking about the ramifications or without fully thinking through all the possible externalities that might arise from that decision, then you don't really have a critical kind of thinking through the entire process. And what political science is about is trying to say, well, maybe this decision is the right decision, but how can we think through all of the possible things that could arise in an informed kind of way, you know, based on history and so on and so forth? So in some ways, it's like looking at the ripple effects of decision making. I, I would say that, just, that that's fair, right? Okay. All right. Not just like what it was intended to do, but actually right. what it ends up right. doing. Or even just what you want, right? Yeah. Some people have a, if we did this to the minimum wage, the government should really do that. Yeah. But what are the consequences of that? Yeah. And it would be worth saying that the bigger the system, the more complex it is. I, absolutely. Yeah. So the ripple effects are can oftentimes That's be true. completely different from what people expect That's them to right. be. Because systems resist change. So the question is not only what's the action being taken, right. but how does the system adapt to the new action? Sometimes it? the system doesn't adapt. I'm going to quick tangent, just a story. When you look at how deregulation happens in some locales, some states are hit much harder than others. So 
you might have some politicians who will lobby to have, let's say, like the oil industry deregulated in terms of what they can do with their relationship with the environment. And although the people who are the lawmakers, they may not have a, a direct impact in their own lives. You have places like Louisiana, all the bayous and that entire Delta region where they die off. You have trees dying off. You have animals dying off. You have really the death of entire bayous and the Delta region. But it might take 25 years for people to notice it. And also the people who are most affected are the poorest people who don't have the same level of access to resources. And so what it means to take those types of decisions very seriously is not necessarily what politicians do, but it's what the political scientists are looking at. Well, how's this going to affect these, these things? Oh, that's interesting. So we're doing what we generally do in our conversations, which is dive right in. For the people who don't know you, just give us a little bit of an insight around like who you are. I know you're a coach. Besides being a political scientist, you're like a personal coach. So tell us a little bit about what you do in the world. And if you have a story that can tell us why you became a political scientist, why you took the journey you took, pull a feel for who you are. Yeah. The thing that led me that kind of intellectual journey was in undergrad, I did international relations. I've always been interested in various different cultures. Did a lot around Cuba and Cuban socialism and the Cuban economy. And this was before the restrictions had changed. Then I spent about four months in Western Cuba. And part of that was like racially driven, was politicized very early. I'm a Philadelphian. Mumia Abu-Jamal has very kind of early impact on my lens of how I saw the world. By the time I was out of high school, I was already very political. By the time I was done with undergrad, in my own head, I was like fed up with the United States. More on that later. And I, I wanted to get away, but not go very far. So Cuba seemed like the perfect place. And there were some things that were really neat to see and some other things that were really frustrating. But having come back, I, I had some perspective. I had some analysis. I really wanted to kind of understand how it was that I saw things that, that people around me didn't see and someone that was about the perspective but also really trying to understand if you're looking at systems, sometimes you can see the parts and how they affect individuals in ways that systemic forces, you can't necessarily see them if you're not looking at this. And you might feel them in your life, but if you're not looking at the system, you, you don't realize where they come from. And that for me was really what I wanted to see more, which is why I did that more political science at grad school. It was like, how do I understand these systems and how they affect us? What was the yearning that brought you to Cuba? Fidel was a champion of American blacks during that era. I mean, he would always stay in Harlem. He spoke out against the racism of the United States government against black people. Not even in an odd way, but, but he was one of these world leaders that condemned uh, the treatment of American blacks. And it resonated, I think, with a lot of black Americans. Fidel had a lot of fans, a lot of black fans in the United States. So for me, it felt more welcoming than my own country. And what did you discover when you got there? I discovered... Theory was nice. The reality was a little bit different. As a black Spanish speaker, I found that my treatment was, was deplorable in Cuba. And as a black American, I probably could have sailed uh, a little bit more easily. But as a Spanish speaker, what happened, I'd say Cubans are treated like second-class citizens in their own country, or at least at the time. And so it wasn't the racial stuff so much, but it was this, the fact that I passed as Cuban, that I was just treated like a Cuban all the time. I didn't want to be treated like a Cuban. Sometimes I'd fake an accent, like a really bad Spanish accent, and people would treat me slightly better. You really got an insider's view. Oh, I got the Cuban treatment. 
sometimes it came with some benefit. Like I paid in Cuban money, which was about a 20th of what most foreigners pay. So my trip was super cheap compared to most Americans who, or most foreigners who go there. So I paid Cuban rates, but I got the Cuban treatment. So Fascinating. And how did that shift or change your view around Cuba, socialism? There's so much talk about socialism now, and a lot of what we talk about isn't actually socialism. So right. <laughs> I'm just curious, like in your mind at the time, where, where did the dots connect? So much of, of what I noticed was how the political system actually affects the culture. Post maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later, but if there are 40 people who are waiting for a bus, and sometimes there's a line where 40 people might potentially be waiting for a bus, it's the beginning of a bus stop. When the newest person arrives to wait to wait in the queue, they'll ask who the last person was. Who's the last person at this bus stop? Ultimo, right? They'd say, who's the, the last person there? And everyone has a, a sense of who that last person was, and they know each person who comes before them. So with like a Philadelphia bus, everybody, it's going to be a mad dash. Whoever gets on the bus gets on the bus, you know, every person for themselves. Mm. But in Cuba, the respect for you came first and you have access, like there is no mad dash. There's never a sense of every person for themselves. Everyone takes their turn. And there's a sense of everyone does their part. Everyone takes a turn, which is part of this communist socialist idea. But it pervades every aspect of society that people really, not in every single way, but people take care of each other in a way that is kind of unseen here. There's really a lot of camaraderie, even between strangers. Yeah, versus here, it's kind of everyone's for yourself, and you assume that resources are limited, and right. they may run out, and right. so you run for it. Yes, exactly that. Even there, when resources are limited, people are still respectful of just what it means to be doing this together. So mm. that kind of cultural like shift, uh, it was odd to see, but you don't get a sense of, I'm going to do me and you do you. Like That's not a cultural thing for them. Uh, when I was in Cuba, I remember, I think I left my phone or something like at a restaurant or a place where I'd been the night before. And I was at a corner and I know I'm white, so I'm having, I'm getting a different treatment and I, I'm fully aware of that. Yet it was still astounding to me because you can be a tourist in Rome and get a good treatment, but this is still not going to happen. I was at the corner and I was puzzled because I was trying to understand what to do next. Right. And someone just came up to me and said, what do you need? Like people noticed, right. was trying to decide whether I was going to get a physical taxi or a bike taxi. And someone just came up to me and said, how can I help you, basically? And this um, wasn't a solicitation. It was just help. No, it was literally help. Perfect. And I said, well, I think I need a taxi. He's like, well, you can get a bike taxi right there. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can get a bike taxi right there. Because I was trying to figure out how to get a physical taxi. And it was only a few blocks away. So I was like, oh, yeah, I can get a bike taxi. He's like... Anything else? I'm like, no, I'm good. Wow, customer service. It was just that, yeah. yeah. And I'm sure that looking extremely touristy and extremely white and extremely not Cuban had something to do with it. But it still speaks to something that I also experienced in Africa, which is an emotional, an awareness of people's emotional states. Yeah. And a response yeah. to people's emotional states. I always say Africans are like the most emotionally intelligent people I've ever seen. Hmm. And of course, Africa is very diverse and I've never been in a zone of conflict so that my perception of Africa is inside of places of peace. I remember people in Africa, like if I got anxious about the bus not coming, like people saying to me, don't worry, it's going to come. Hmm. Like the minute I would start right. getting anxious, they'd kind of read your they'd body. Be like, yeah, they, they'd feel it. So I think that comes to what you're speaking to, like when we're in community in a way that every part matters. Yeah. 
we're more responsive to how other people are doing. In my experience, the response in the United States is generally comes from a place of trauma, from mm. being like hypervigilant. It's like, oh, you're anxious. Let me look out for what, like, you may tick. So I'm going to like get on guard and figure out, okay, how can I help you so you don't Right, tick? so you don't explode. Yeah. Right. I remember just what it means to be on a bus here. You know, we're talking about buses. Uh, but watching people who are about to explode and generally the response so this is Philadelphia. So Philadelphia culture also has something to do with that. But generally people will give you enough uh, of a wide berth if they can, if they assume that you are not going to lose it. But they think that there's going to be some collateral damage. I've noticed kind of to your point that sometimes they'll get involved, not so much for your well-being, but really so that you don't explode over the entire bus. But I've seen some tragedies, too, on the bus. But it's, it's, a, it's a thing. So I'm fascinated that you say, on one hand, you have this kind of more recognition of human beings and space and distribution of resources, right? And on the other hand, you said, though, you got the Cuban treatment. So, yeah, I guess I didn't really articulate that well. It's still a place where personal freedoms for Cubans, right, for, for citizens are restricted, or it was. 2001, I think, was the last time that I was there. I mean, there are two things that the Cuban government is trying to manage, or a few. One of them certainly has to do with, uh, with dissidents, but I, I think probably the bigger problem that I was encountering was they try to stop solicitation of foreigners. They don't want foreigners to really come into contact with everyday Cubans in a, a willy-nilly kind of way. It's a very mm-hmm. um, kind of sterilized uh, type of contact. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of, of the way that I moved, the, the way that I carried my, I tried all types of things to, to stop harassment by the police. I had long locks at the time, which probably came down to the bottom of my shoulder. And somebody was like, oh, it's your hair. So I cut my hair. I was skating around town uh, all throughout the city. Somebody said, oh, it's the skates. So I stopped skating and I started taking the bus, which is why I have all these, these bus stories. It wasn't the skates. It wasn't the hair. I'd cut my hair. Right? It wasn't the hair which had taken me eight years to grow. It was an intense decision. It was. I was getting a lot of harassment. One day I got stopped eight times by the police. Oh, wow. Um, and then I got into like a big fight with one of them. My american showed. Uh, I told the, the police officer where he could stick it. And he um, gave me a warning. He said, listen, this is not how you, you talk to police officers. And I said, I'll talk to you however I want, my friend. You sure. said it in English or in Spanish? No, this is all in Spanish. And I oh. showed out. And then he told me to get in the back of the car. And I, I said, come again? He said, yeah, get in the back of the car. And so you've never seen anybody backpedal, backpedal so quickly. I was the most apologetic, the most... I backpedaled very quickly with as many profuse apologies as I could muster. And he said, I accept your apology. Get in the car. Now I'm groveling. And he finally, he said, I don't want to see you on my beat. I don't ever want to see your face. If you see me, turn around the other direction. It was a, a yes, sir. Thank you very much. And this will never happen again. And I disappeared. The day that that happened, I'd been stopped eight times. And that last time, I, I was stationary. I was literally sitting down. It's like, how are you going to stop me? And I'm, I'm not even in motion. I'm not on skates. I don't have long hair. I'm not walking. I'm not driving. I'm sitting. And you're going to stop me? So it was really that relationship with the police that I found really, really kind of disagreeable. But beside the police, everything else was fine. 
And how many months were you there? Uh, about four months. Okay. I was in Cuba for like two weeks, so there's no comparison in terms of life experience. I want to take a step back for listeners not familiar to talking about politics as political systems. I think there are like tons of things, like tons of directions we can go in. And this piece that you said, right, that political systems inform culture, I think is really key. And I think when a lot of people think about a fear of socialism, mm. some of it is a fear of like what you just said, like of a more of a police state. I think a lot of it is fear of like equal distribution of resources and losing resources for those who have more than those who don't. Come back to that. Sure. Help me define political system. That's interesting. I guess I have one view. I have to go real high uh, just because it's the way that I see it, right? Yeah, yeah. It used to be that people could move around somewhat freely. That is to say, it didn't matter where, like, I'm talking about borders, right? So if Mexicans come to the United States now and they have to cross this border. But things weren't always kind of that way. There were like religious fiefdoms that people would have, but there used to be, you had a king or prince and he, he would be the, the king of this realm. He would rule this realm or whatever, reign, I guess is, is the term. He would reign over this realm. Then the religious wars broke out, and people really started, I mean, just Martin Luther, but they basically the Catholics and the Protestants started fighting, killing each other, and the Europeans wanted to put an end to that system. So with the birth of the nation state, uh, which is just like a country now, the birth of the modern country, one of the things that got restricted was the, the kind of mobility of princes and kings. They used to be able to move all around. So you'll have like a king who's the king of Spain and like a German and... He'd be the king of Denmark. He'd be like the king of five different places. But so this is the birth of a nation state in Europe. This is the birth of the, yeah. the modern nation state in Europe. One of the things that it did is solidified borders. Mm -hmm. So the way that we think of borders today is really a result of that thing happening. And then everything else that kind of comes after that, by the time we get the individualism that kind of is pervasive in, in Western culture now, and the fact that we can't move around, everything that... I think we experience in terms of how countries operate is an interplay of these two things. It's every man for himself or every person for themselves. And also, you have a special relationship to just this territory. I don't want to say humans aren't quite humans anymore, but now people have this identity of like, oh, I'm an American, I'm a Mexican, right? This territory defines my identity. Mm -hmm. And there's that special kind of relationship there. In some ways, I think it's unnatural. I mean, people have always migrated. They've always moved around. They've gone from place to place. But that, it's a restriction now. And so the way that I think of systems has to do with the interplay of those two things, with uh, a particular type of individuality and also the kind of restriction around human movement and the allocation of resources. There are certain things Americans are going to get the Mexicans are not going to get. But it really has to do with the lottery that you were born with this passport or not. So borders are like literally boundaries, how the boundaries are set, what meaning they have, how they impact our culture. We're going to talk more about that because I'm a sociologist, so I'm totally going to go there. But also the laws, the regulations, the right. policies that have it so that the borders function the way they do transportation works. Like right. it's these higher level, if we think about transportation, transportation is one thing. And there are a lot of local legislations there, but the political system gets to decide, right, that we have cars and not carriages, for instance. Like, 
the higher up you go, the more abstract that law or that policy mm -hmm. is because it's the umbrella of something smaller. Right. And what I love about you saying that political systems impact culture is that it becomes like the air we breathe. Oh, we're not sure. present, like what we're saying in the comparison with Cuba, we're not present to how the United States political system informed the way even you and I are interacting right now. Correct. There is a permeation of it. It's sort of like, but like dripping down a window. There is a trickling down from top to bottom, just like there is a trickling up from mm -hmm. bottom to top. And that's where we have collective powers. Like if we all shifted the way we interact with one another, the political system would have to shift. So we, we got to get to that ASAP then. <laughs> yes, we do. <laughs> we have to get to that ASAP. Tell us more about that. I mean, so one of the things that you just said uh, about how our system affects the culture, well, this is a country that thinks of corporations as people. Corporations have rights. Corporations can do this. And we limit the types of ways that we can even go after corporations. There's a really good example of a place, I want to say it's like Lakeview, Arizona. Um, I might forget the exact name of the town, but it's a town in Arizona where there's lots of ranches, a lot of cattling uh, happens, and there is a, a dairy producer that comes in, right? And so it's arid land for the most part, but if you look at it from the sky, you see these big ground, big green round circles of grass. And the grass is there to feed the dairy cattle. That's all that's there. And so the considerable uh, you know, water resources and lots of money is necessary to herd these cattle and, and to feed them. The thing is, there's a water table that every resident in this town has to drill to dig a well. And digging a well is it's not a cheap process. So the average individual maybe would spend $30,000 to drill, dig a well. And then you have access to the water. But when a multi-million dollar company comes in, they have bits that can go down, let's say, that might cost a million dollars to drill. At some point, the water table goes down far enough that the average individual, they can no longer access the water. And so now we have the people in the community, they have rights to the water, and the corporation has the same rights to the water. The corporation, their needs are so much greater, and they have a lot more money to spend, that now you have people who, they can't afford to drill that deep. They have homes, they've bought, they've, they're life savings, but no access to water, so now you got to move. But you have one hundred and fifty to $250,000 pent up in a house that no one is going to buy because it's a house with no water. Mm. So what do you do? And for those people, they're just stuck. Their lives are ruined, right? You have a house that you can't drink at. You can't take a shower. You know, you can't flush your toilets. And you can't import that much water, right? Not for everything. Yeah, water is essential. Uh, right. But we treat the corporation the same way that we treat the person and... It seems logical to us. I mean, I think Americans are like, well, they have the right to do it, right? They got the money. But no. And yeah. so this is one of the ways, I think, the fact that it feels right to so many Americans, the fact that you have so many politicians, even in that county, defending the corporation's right to do this, it seems wrong to me, but it seems right to them. And that's one of these places where really our policy and really our systems affect even the morality, the kind of culture and what their cultural mores are on the ground of, of people who think of corporations as, as people. Yeah, our, our current political systems are based in transaction. They're not actually based in right. 
a value of human dignity of it's every really human not. being. Yeah. And so you mentioned this before the show that your take is that individual is in decline. Tell us a little bit more about that <gasps> issue around human dignity in our collective power. We've been doing individualism since 300 some odd years. And by the time we, capitalism is really interesting. It has these, it's a double-edged sword, but whatever was happening with our kind of ideas of the individual, capitalism only sharpened that, that spear. It's like a, a sharpened spear tip. And it really incentivizes people to just do whatever is in their own best interest, which I think on the, on the, on the face of it isn't, isn't a bad thing. Until we start to get to where we are now, now we can see this thing, is, it's leaking at, at all the edges, right? It's, uh, people are really getting crushed by it. So in this late stage, you know, whether you are in the gig economy or whether, you know, you don't have uh, access to water anymore or whether the bayou has been destroyed by some large corporation, now you have loads of Americans who may not be able to put their finger on this kind of individualist pursuit and capitalism is the problem, but their lives are being affected. They're getting cancer, right? They can't eat, they, whatever it is. We see that, that this is not sustainable. Like we can't really move forward this way. And I think as long as we are still trying to do our own thing, everyone is an island. Uh, we don't have any collective power. We don't have any ability to push back against the corporations. And so our only, as individuals, as individuals, our only real strategy for survival against big forces is to do community. Like, we have to come together. And it's not just coming together for, like, a particular cause and disbanding. Um, you know, social capital was built that way in the past, but we actually need to figure out what we want, who we are, and be in communion and be in community with the people who, who we need to be with because we're not going to make it otherwise. One of the things I'm getting present to in this conversation is that all our political systems were generated by collective power, right? That's true. It was like a group of people coming That's together absolutely right. and saying, okay, how do we come together to leverage our interests? Right. And in the United States, that was always white people, right? right? Um, but it was always mostly a coming, men. mostly white men. That's right. Coming together to... Um, leverage their interests and uh, do more with less, basically. Right. Right. True. Um, and so, in the place where we are now, that like a lot of us have more of attention to equity, right? We don't want a lot of us don't want that world to come back. Some people do. Um, like we have to leverage our collective power to fight a collective power. Like you can't fight a collective power with individual power. <laughs> right you can't right. you can't fight or overcome a system that was generated by collective power and was like um sedimented we say in italian i don't know that that's an english word but like is rooted across centuries right. with individual power like individuals don't change systems only movements do so you know i i, I couldn't agree with you more i i think that and this is one of these you know again i, I want to kind of look at the the cultural thing uh, in terms of just, you know, the, the how our economic system and our political system affect, a lot of people, they, they're not even looking for change. They're not, they're looking to get, let's say, for example, I, I know, um, you know, if you look at the problem of, of gentrification um, from um, a resource and a uh, kind of um, an economic standpoint, just looking at the economics of it, right? You have capital that is seeking 
um, to make a particular kind of return. Uh, I, you could look at the politics of, of gentrification or you could just look at the economics, but then there are some people who are like, I'm unconcerned with that. I'm really just trying to get mine. And, That's right. And so how can I make money? If, if gentrification is the, is the word of the day, okay, that's fine. If you're telling me that I could become a millionaire in the process, then uh, then bring on the gentrification. Um, and that's one way of seeing it. Um, but, you, again, there are all these externalities. There are all these unintended consequences that you're not seeing. Um, and and I, I think in terms of – so this is the part that, that's hard to sell for people. I think – People believe that if I can just make a million dollars and not have community, right, or it's not a, you know, I don't even care about those people, uh, then I'm going to be okay. And it's hard to convince people, I think, uh, if they have that mentality, that actually you're not going to be okay, your life is going to be worse, uh, and the quality of all these things are going to go down. Um, the, 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 The fact that individualism is not sustainable at this level is not immediately apparent. Until, I don't know, until you have something like this, right? <laughs> like, um, so we're in the midst of this coronavirus thing. Uh, and some people are very afraid. Some people are not afraid at all. Uh, you have some people who are like, listen, I, I work with elderly people. I don't want to have uh, any of the people that I know die because uh, people are being irresponsible. And so why are you, as a young college student, saying, I'm just going to take as many trips as, as I possibly can because they're cheap? It's like, well, well one, on, on the one hand, the culture says, do you, right? Like, if, right. You, can, if you can take a, a cheap trip, then take a cheap trip. Why wouldn't I, right? Airfare is super low. Uh, on the other hand, you're like, but these people might die because you're being irresponsible. And this is the conflict that you might not see the fact that your so now we can say it's very clear. Now we can see that your individual desire to pursue just I don't know your kind of hedonism might actually kill people. But it, even if you were to take a step back, that's generally um, that's generally the the kind of uh, equation that we're dealing with all the time is that this individual greed is harming people on the other end even if you don't see them, even if you don't know them. Um, and I think it, it's hard for people to see that sometimes. Now it seems a, a little bit more clear. So I want to bring back like that really important moment in which you shared what the experience was with police officers in Cuba. Right. Like, how does that compare to your experience in the United States? It's a little bit of a jump, but I want to get back to what you're saying, which is like how it's hard for people to see the individual in the collective. We'll come back to that. Um, so how do those experiences compare? Mm, uh, so for me, that's a good question because it, 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 it's a turning point. It leads to a turning point. Yeah. I was so frustrated when I got back from Cuba that, I, you know, first thing I did, I was like one of these people, I literally kissed the ground. I did that. Oh, wow. I loved my nation state. Um, I loved my territory. So I literally kissed the ground. And I went back to work, and you know I was working in coffee at the time. I was young, um, and I was coming home from work at like one thirty in the morning. And I cut through a parking lot to a high school that's no longer there. It was University City High School. And uh, a police officer turned on his lights and kind of pulled me over. I was walking. He he was just sitting in, in his cruiser, and he said, um, "He said, where are you coming from this time of night?" I said, "Well." So I'm fresh off of like being questioned in Cuba. So now I got my rights, right? I'm back in the U.S. I'm in my town. Uh oh, can't tell me anything. He said, "Where are you coming from?" I said, "Well, 
I think I don't have to tell you that. He said, come on, man, where, where are you coming from? I said, oh, okay, well, now that you rephrased it, I think I don't have to tell you where I'm coming from. He said, all right, show me your ID. I said, okay, I'll do that. Showed him my ID. He said, where are you coming from? I said, yeah, I'm not, I'm not telling you, right? You've seen my ID. You know my name. So he asked me to assume the position, spread my legs, whatever. He said, do you have any weapons? The whole, mm-hmm. the whole shebang. Yeah. Uh, he said, now, um, we could either do this the hard way or we could do this the easy way. You could either tell me where you're coming from or I can F you up right here in the parking lot where it's dark and no one will ever know and then take you down to the, the station and then you're going to tell me where you're coming from anyway. So it's your choice. So I said, well, since you put it that way, uh, I'm coming from work. As you can see on my shirt here, it says uh, the name of the coffee shop. Uh, and I smell like coffee and... Apparently, you're not a detective, but yeah, that's where I'm coming from. So you got a smart mouth. I said, look, I told you what you wanted to know. So he kept me for about, uh, I don't know, 15 more minutes, and he let me go. And I walked home. It's now like 2 o'clock in the morning, continued walking home. Now a little bit more humiliated and somewhat somewhat angrier. Um, And if I I didn't need to be repoliticized, this was certainly one of these things that really... Uh, made me start to look at what's what's wrong with the governance in this country. I mean, this is really where, like, you know, it, it was about th- these systems aren't working; like, they're broken, um, and that that was a turning point for for me. Um, very different than that other experience in Cuba, but uh, things are really wrong here too. I'm not sure if that answered your question or not. No, it's 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 great. And I think, so what you were saying before is that um, before I sent you on that journey and thank you for sharing what you shared is that it's hard for people to connect the individual impact with the collective impact. So, and that political systems inform culture. Like in Cuba, police harassment may look a certain way inside of the face of socialism. It may look really brutal inside of the frequency of it. In the systems of the United States, what we do is we hide our inequality. You were a step from mass incarceration. That's correct. And you made a choice in that moment. This is one of the things that a lot of people that I know struggle with is, do you acquiesce or do you push back in that moment? I don't even know if there's a right answer. It kind of comes down to individual personality, but also knowing it's possible to not fully understand. For me, without reading Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow, I don't think I had a really, really good understanding of what means if you cross that tripwire and you end up on that other side, even if you're innocent, even if you're like a Khalif Browder, it can ruin your life. That moment. That little moment can ruin your life. Question, right? Do I acquiesce? Which is a really hard one. Not for me, because I, I don't want that. I'll, I'll just, look, uh, if it's me versus you and there are no witnesses, I'm going to survive that, that moment uh, to the best of my ability. But I have friends, really well-educated friends, who push back and like nearly lose their lives because they won't acquiesce. And it's an individual decision. I can't say that one is better than the other. It's a hard moment to, to contend with. So it's hard to think about collective power in the face of something like police harassment or police brutality. Because 
I think, coming from where we started, which is political systems inform our culture right. in the way that we become fish in water. Right? It's the very air we breathe, right. and we assume that things are the way they are. Or, let's say, a lot of white folk assume that things are the way they are, and we can't change them. And there's been a lot more activism, like there's a lot more aliveness and pushback than there's ever been. And thank goodness for that. Thank goodness for that. Very much to that point, in those moments, there's not much to be decided. Um, it's when those when the stakes are lower, uh, i.e. you're not in these one, uh, you know, kind of life and death uh, decision-making moments, where we have relative freedom. It's in those moments that we can organize. It's in those moments that we can actually do more, you know, kind of collective thinking and how can we attack this problem as a community. For me, a lot of, obviously, we have loads of, of people who are doing really good activism, but just enough people who are saying, oh, it's not my problem. And they're like, I'm committed to doing nothing. I'm trying to get mine. It's again, it's this conflict with like, actually, your power is here. You can't really wait until you've experienced this in order to do something. But culture is one where we say, oh, if, if I'm not facing it immediately, then I'm going to mind my business. Yeah. And that's been cultivated over years absolutely, through certain political systems and the way they've informed culture and so on and so forth, and particular capitalism, right? And so it, we have a very transactional relationship with each other. Like, if you can help me right now, if like what you say benefits me and my radio show, I'm going to let you say it and be nice to you versus, no, you're a human being who is worthy of great treatment. And not only because you're worthy in terms of you've accomplished things and you're, but no, you're human, right. right? And as human, you have an inherent human dignity that is my job as your fellow human to honor, right? To honor and respect and stay right. on the journey, right? So even just like giving ourselves a moment to dream, like what would a political system that works from that premises look like? I think we have some really good examples uh, here already in the U.S. of people who they do community first and they kind of act from that communal stance. And primary kind of uh, way that they organize themselves is how can I be, this is biblical language that is also kind of male-oriented, but you know, how can I be my brother's keeper? How can I be the keeper of the other person in my That's community, right? right? which automatically, I think, extends to a type of stewardship of your community slash your environment slash the planet. And both stewardship and being each other's keeper, like both of those things are, say whatever you will uh, about the Bible. One of the reasons that I think that it, and I'm not a Christian for the record, but one of the things that it's lasted for so long is because so much of the insights, right, are just human insights. And they're onto something when it says, how can I be my brother's keeper? Like it's outlasted loads of civilization. There's an important insight there. And I think if we miss that, if we say that it's only about us, right? It's only about the individual. We have loads of civilizations that didn't make it because they missed that lesson. I think when we look at communities here in the United States, that they start with an idea of the community first. You can think of various Chinatowns in the U.S. You can think of various Jewish communities, mm -hmm. uh, Hasidic communities in the U.S. You can think of the Amish, right? Bryn Athen. Um, there are a few where the communalism is part of how they do life. They flourish. They've been around hundreds of years. Like, they flourish. 
And it's becoming very common in the activist community as well. It's called prefigurative work. There's a term for it. Hmm. It basically means we have to be the community we want to be. You have to be the community. Like we have to be it. We can't give what we don't have. So we can't push against systems by fighting, 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 fighting. And then internally we're also fighting. Because basically we are using the same like energy internally that the system is using against us. Mm. So we can't shift the higher up if we're not willing to operate in a different way. I'm going to use a little example here because I have a friend who does this extremely well. And every time I walk down the street with her, I'm always present to it. Like if anyone directs the word to her, she will stop and talk with that person. If, if any like, person like okay. talks to her, okay. she will stop and talk to that person. And oh, wow. I can see her interact with, and I aim to do this. I aspire to do it. I think I do it better some days than others. But like she will talk to the person at the coffee shop making her coffee with the same sense of dignity she would talk to mm. a politician with. Right. There's yeah. a human on the other side. And, and the assumption is, so we were in the train station the other day and depending on the, the cultural framework you come from, was walking between worlds or uh, had mental health challenges, okay. depending on the frame, right? Um, started talking to her, and I just saw her do the same thing. She just turned to him and just listened and nodded her head in everything that he had to say. And when she turned back to me in the end, because we had to go, she was like, that was a message. Like That was a message for me. Because hmm. wow. the guy actually said to her, get your girlfriend and, and save this world. <laughs> And um, well, I'm nodding. People can't say, but I'm not. <laughs> I mean, there's something like have, making community first mm-hmm. and cultivating human dignity means actually like chipping away at that disposability politics that we have that I just want you to give me my damn coffee and get out of my face. Right. Right. Which is like and it's funny that I'm saying this because, you know, you're the co-founder of Uncle Bobby's and that's who we met at the coffee shop. But we do that in everything we do. I think we're just at the point, you know, I want to say it's unfortunate. Just our ability to continue to, like, I think that people are starting to get it. Get it in ways that they weren't able to get it before. But this just me thing is not going to work for us. It's not sustainable. And I I think all you need to do is just take one big look at how the planet is going to work. Whether it's novel viruses or, you know, environmental degradation if we only kind of boil things down to I'm in it for me, then the way that we survive, the way that we thrive, the way that we build something new and sustainable is through taking care of each other. It's the only way. That's kind of how we survived not having fire. That's literally how humans survived as hairless, hairless apes walking around with like no shelter and a bunch of animals that were there to taking care of each other. Yeah, right? that's yeah, right. That's like, the only way we thrive. So that's yeah, what we need. And that still stands like that staying still like kind of foundation of how humanity became what it is still stands. Right. I love that. Thank you. And I just love to hear like, how do people keep in touch with you and all the, tell us a little bit more about the other work you do. Is there anything that you want to share with folks around that? And how do folks keep in touch with you if they want to hear more about your work? I come from a place where I grew up in a housing project, and I was able to watch a lot of uh, really talented, really brilliant people just go unrecognized because they didn't have access to resources in the same way. And mine is filled with just friends who are brilliant in their own right. And not even to qualify that as in their own, like brilliant people who are kind of penned in 
uh, just by circumstance, and the world never gets to see their brilliance. And I think because of that, one of my core missions in life is to help to remove some of the barriers uh, of human connection so that people can be more in connection, more in communion, to help remove some of those barriers so that every individual gets to contribute their unique proposition, their unique gift to the larger human community. And so mostly what I try to do is work with people to either remove some of those uh, kind of barriers in their life or some of their self-limiting beliefs so that they can actually kind of dig down deep and do some of that hard work, but do some of the hard work that's necessary to bring out their truest self, their highest self, Mm -hmm. and then contribute from that place to the larger community. It's mostly Mm -hmm. what I do in the world. Beautiful. And how do people find out about you, keep Uh, in touch with you? They can find me at uh, rafaelfreeman.com. There's another project that I have, too. It's called Heterodox Americana, which is a podcast. So they can find me at Heterodox America. I'll spell it H-E-T-E-R-O-D-O-X, Americana, heterodoxamericana.com. And Heterodox Americana also has, I'm on Heterodox Americana on Instagram as well. And people can listen to your podcast by... So they can listen to it directly on the website or wherever you go for your podcast. Normally, Spotify, Apple, we're on all of the major uh, distribution platforms for for podcasts. Yeah. And we have a lot of these conversations around kind of connecting mind and politics. I, Mm -hmm. I know happen also on your show. So it's a great place to kind of unpack the way we think and kind of the greater implications of what we think as well. I think it's right at this nexus of human thriving and what are these kind of hard ideas that stand in our way and politics, right? Like those kind of where those three things meet. So that's the idea. Do you have any final thoughts? Other than hitting the one that I've hit uh, a few times, this idea of community is where it's at. I was in this kind of, uh, I don't want to say a false community, but it was kind of a constructed community, right? Just like it was based on income and, you know, housing situation. We all have different work to do. Whatever our level of work is going to be, those are the people that we need to seek out and really just like be community with them. Every community is going to do their part in this process. But the idea of being an island, which for me is, uh, that's my natural state, right? I'm going to do it. Put my head down, be all alone. That's not how we win. That's not how we succeed. And I'd say however it is that you are in the world, find those people who are like you in the world uh, and just spend time, you know, Build relationships with them. Be community with them. Uh, and something, you know, will emerge. Something will emerge as, oh, actually, we need to take this action. Uh, and then we can start to move into a more sustainable place. We're moving the entire needle of humanity forward. So, yeah, organize. Be, you know, join an organization. Be with people. Thank you so much for being our guest, Raphael. It was really a treat. Thank you for listening to another episode of Collective Power. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, recommend a guest on our show, or write for our upcoming Medium publication, feel free to contact us at collectivepowermedia.com. You can also become a supporter and help us offset the costs of making the podcast for as little as $3 a month. To do so, go on our website at collectivepowermedia.com and click on the button that says Donate, Become a Supporter. Thank you for your courage to see the bigger picture. And until next week, drop the mic.